Jag är här nu på Jag såg ISL-kart för ISL-kart och gas och strad ISL. Jag vill ha jag såg några många ajar. Welcome to the 364th of the Cthulhu Podcasts. I'm Felbrick. Today we'll continue with South with Scott by Edward Evans, who was part of Scott's fabled and fatal journey south. Then we'll continue with the reading of Lovecraft's The Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath. Let's head to that white continent. Chapter 12. Southern Journey, Motor Sledge's Advance. On October the 24th, 1911, the advance guard of the Southern Party, consisting of Day, Lashley, Hooper and myself, left Cape Evans with two motor sledges as planned. We had with us three tons of stores, pony food and petrol, carried on five 12-foot sledges, and our own tent, etc., on a smaller sledge. The object of sending forward such a weight of stores was to save the ponies' legs over the variable sea ice, which was in some places hummocky and in others too slippery to stand on. Also, the first 30 miles of barrier was known to be bad travelling, unlikely to tire the ponies unnecessarily unless they marched light. So, here again, it was desirable to employ the motors for a heavy drag. We had fine weather when at 10.30am we started off, with the usual concourse of well-wishers, and after one or two stops and sniffs we really got under way and worked our loads clear of the cape to the smoother stretch of sea ice, which improved steadily as we proceeded. Hooper accompanied Lashley's car, and I worked with Day. A long shaft protruded three feet clear each end of the motors. To the foremost end we attached the steering rope, just a set of man harness with a long trace, and to the after end of this shaft we made fast the towing lanyard or span, according to whether we hauled sledges abreast or in single file. Many doubts were expressed to the use of these despised motors but we heeded not the jibes of our friends who came out to speed us on our way. They knew we were doing our best to make the motors successful, and their expressed sneers covered their sincere wishes that we should manage to get our loads well onto the barrier. We made a mile an hour speed to begin with, and stopped at Razorback Island after three and a half miles. We had lunch at Razorback, and after that we lumped, manhauled, and persuaded the two motors and three tons of food and stores another mile onwards. The trouble was not on account of the motors failing, but because of a smooth blue ice surface. We camped at 10pm and all slept the sleep of tired men. October 25th was ushered in with a hard wind, and it appeared in the morning as if our cars were not going to start. We had breakfast at 8am, and got started on both motors at 1045 but soon found that we were unable to move the full loads owing to the blue ice surface, so took to relaying. We advanced under three miles after ten hours' distracting work, mostly pulling the sledges ourselves, jerking, heaving, distracting work, and cursing. It was tug-of-war work, and should have broken our hearts, but in spite of our adversity, we all ended up smiling and camped close on 9pm. The day turned out beautifully fine and calm, but the hard ice was absolutely spoiling the rollers of both cars. Whilst we were preparing for bed, Simpson and Gran passed our tent and called on us. They were bound for Hut Point. 
I told Simpson our troubles about the surface and he promised to telephone from Hut Point to Captain Scott. Next day we got going with certain difficulties and met Gran and Simpson four miles from Hut Point. They told us that a large man-hauling party was on its way out from Cape Evans to assist us. The weather was superb and we got all very sunburned. Captain Scott and seven others came up with us about 2pm, but both motors were then forging ahead so that they went on to Hut Point without waiting. Meanwhile, we lunched and afterwards struck a bad patch of surface which caused us to frequent stop. We reached Hut Point about 8pm, after stopping the motors near Cape Armitage and spent the night in the hut there, camping with Scott's party, Mears and Dimitri. The motor engines were certainly good in moderate temperatures, but our slow advance was due to the chains slipping on hard ice. Scott was concerned, but he made it quite clear that if we got our loads clear of the strait between White Island and Ross Isle, we would be more than satisfied. Mears and Bowers cooked a fine seal fry for us all, and we spent a happy evening at Hut Point. The hut, thanks to Mears and Dimitri, was now for these latitudes a regular Mayfair dwelling. The blubber stove was now a bricked-in furnace, with substantial chimney and hot plates with cooking space sufficient for our needs, however many were being accommodated. On October the 27th, I woke the cooks at 6.30am, and we breakfasted about 8 o'clock, and then went up to the motors off Cape Armitage. Lashley's car got away and did about three miles with practically no stop. Our carburettor continually got cold, and we stopped a good deal. Eventually, about 1pm, we lashed Lashley's car and made our way up a gentle slope onto the barrier, waved to the party, and went on about three quarters of a mile. Here we waited for Lashley and Hooper, who came up at 2.30, having had much trouble with their engine due to overheating. When Day's car glided from the sea ice over the tide crack and onto the great ice barrier itself, Scott and his party cheered wildly and Day acknowledged their applause with a boyish smile of triumph. As soon as Lashley got onto the barrier, Scott took his party away, and they returned to Cape Evans. It would have been a disappointment to them if they'd had known that we shortly afterwards heard an ominous rattle, which turned out to be the big-end brass of one of the connecting rods churning up, due to a bad casting. Luckily, we had a spare, which Day and Lashley fitted, while Hooper and I went on with the ten-foot sledge to safety camp. Here we dug out our provisions according to instructions and brought them back to our camp to avoid further delay in repacking sledges. We then made Day and Lashley some tea to warm them up. They worked nobly and had the car ready by 11pm. We pushed on till midnight in our anxiety to acquit ourselves and our motors creditably. The thermometer showed minus 19.8 degrees on camping, and temperature fell to minus 25 degrees during the night. October 28th was my birthday. All hands wished me many happy returns of the day, and I was given letters from my wife and from Ford and Keir Hain, who somehow remembered the date from last year. These two, with Browning and Dickerson, I brought into the expedition from HMS Talbot, one of my old ships. But to continue... We were all ready to start at 11am in the stiff, cold breeze when I discovered that my personal bag had been taken off by the man-hauling party that came to assist us, so I put on a ski and went to Hut Point six miles back. I found Mears there and he gave me a surprised but hearty welcome and wished me many happy returns. I explained what had happened. 
It had been done, of course, the night before when my namesake had taken my personal bag into Hut Point from Cape Armitage to save me the trouble of carrying it after a hard day's work with the motors. As I'd had no need of it, I never noticed his presence at Hut Point, so there it was. Mears made me laugh by an in the most friendly way, as if I was calling on him in his English home. Stay and have lunch, won't you, Teddy? Of course I did. But I was wanted by the motor party. It was a somewhat hurried meal. Fried seal liver and bacon. We were not allowed to eat bacon on account of scurvy precaution, but still, it was my birthday, and nobody let me forget it. Feeling much better and less angry after this unlooked-for ski run, I swung out to the barrier edge, over the sea ice, up to the barrier slope, and onto the barrier itself, where I picked up the tracks of the motors and followed them for several miles. I remember that ski run well. I felt so very lonely all by myself on the silent barrier, surrounded as I was by lofty white mountains which lifted their summits to the blue peaceful heavens. I thought over the future of the Southern Party, and wondered how things would be one year hence. This was indeed facing the unknown. I enjoyed the keen air, and the crisp surface was so easy to negotiate after my former barrier visits with a heavy sledge dragging one back, but the very easiness I was enjoying made me think of Amundsen and his dogs. If the Norwegians could glide along like this, it would be goodbye to our hopes of planting Queen Alexandra's first flag at the South Pole. As a matter of fact, while I was then making my way along to overtake the motors, Amundsen and his polar party were beyond the 80th parallel, forcing their way southward, and hourly increasing their distance from us and from Captain Scott, who had not even yet started. Yes, Amundsen was over 150 miles further south, and his sledge runners were sliding over the snow, casting his powdered particles aside in a beautiful little clouds, while I was rapidly overhauling the motors with their labouring, sorely taxed custodians, Dave Lashley and Hooper. It seems very cruel to say this, but there's no good in shutting one's eyes to the truth, however unpleasantly clad she may be. I caught the motors late in the afternoon after running nine miles. They'd only done three miles whilst I'd been doing fifteen. We continued crawling along with our loads, stopping to cool the engines every few minutes, it seemed. But at 11pm they overheated to such an extent that we stopped for the night. I was fairly done, but not too tired to enjoy the supper which Hooper cooked, with its many luxuries produced by him. Hooper had informed Bowers of my birthday and obtained all kinds of good things, which we dispatched huddled together in our tents, for it was about twenty degrees below zero when we turned in well after midnight. We intentionally lay in our bags until 8.30 the next morning, but didn't get those dreadful motors to start until about 10.45am. Even then they only gave a few sniffs before breaking down and stopping, so that we could not advance perceptibly until 11.30. We had troubles all day, and were forced to camp on account of Day's sledge giving out at 5pm. We didn't stop for lunch earlier, for once stopped one never could say when a restart could be made. We depoted here four big tins of petrol, and two drums of the filtrate to lighten load of Day's sledge. Started off at six and soon found that the big end brass number two cylinder of this sledge had given out, so dropped two more tins of petrol and a case of filtrate oils. We thereupon continued at a snail's pace until at 9.15 the connecting rod broke through the piston. 
we decided to abandon this sledge, and to make a depot of the spare clothing, seal meat, Xmas fare, ski belonging to Atkinson and Wright, and four heavy cases of dog biscuit. I left a note in a conspicuous position on the depot, which we finished constructing at midnight. We wasted no time in turning in. The clouds were radiating from the southeast, a precursor of a blizzard, we feared, and sure enough we got it the next day, when it burst upon us whilst we were putting on our footgear after breakfast. There was nothing for it but to get back into our sleeping bags, wherein we spent the day. On the 31st we were out of our bags and about soon after six, to find it still drifting but showing signs of clearing. After breakfast we dug out sledges and Lashley and Day got the snow out of the motor. It was a long and rotten job. The weather cleared about 11am and we got under way at noon. It turned out very fine and we advanced our weights 7 miles and 600 yards, camping at 10.40pm. As will be seen, these were long days, and although he did not say it, Day must have felt the crushing disappointment of the failure of the motors. It was not his fault. It was a question of trial and experience. Nowadays we have far more knowledge of air-cooled engines and such crawling juggernauts as tanks, for it may be well argued that Scott's motor sledges were the forerunners of the tanks. On November 1st we advanced six miles, and the motor then gave out. Day and Lashley gave it their undivided attention for hours, and the next day we coaxed the wretched thing to corner camp and ourselves dragged the loads there. Arrived at this important depot, we deposited the dog Pemmican and took three sacks of oats, but after proceeding under motor power for one and a half miles, the big end brass of number one cylinder went, so we discarded the car and slogged on foot with a six weeks food supply for one four-man unit. Our actual weights were £185 per man. We got the whole £740 onto the ten-foot sledge, but with a headwind it was rather a heavy load. We kept going at a mile an hour pace until about 8pm. I'd left a note at the corner camp depot which told Scott of our trying experiences, how the engines overheated so that we had to stop, how by the time they were reasonably cooled the carburettor would refuse duty and must be warmed up with a blow lamp. What trouble Day and Lashley had in starting the motors, and in short how we all four would heave with all our might on the spans of the towing sledges to ease the starting strain and how the engines would give a few sniffs and then stop. But we must not omit the great point in their favour. The motors advanced the necessaries for the southern journey 51 miles over rough, slippery and crevassed ice, and gave the ponies the chance to march light as far as corner camp. This is all that Oates asked for. It was easier now to pull our load straightforwardly south than to play about and expend our uttermost effort daily on those qualified motors. Even Day confessed that his relief went hand in hand with his disappointment. He and Hooper stood both over six feet. Neither of them had an ounce of spare flesh on them. Lashley and I were more solid and squat, and we fixed our party up in harness so that the tall men pulled in front while the short heavy pair dragged as wheelers. Scott described our sledging here as exceedingly good going. We were only just starting, that is, Lashley and myself, for we too were in harness for more than three months on end. I was very proud of the motor party, and determined that they should not be overtaken by the ponies to become a drag on the main body. As it happened, there was never a chance of this occurrence, 
for Scott purposefully kept down his marches to give the weaker animals a chance. As will be seen, we were actually outdistancing the animal transport by our average marches, for in spite of our full load we covered the distances of 15.5 to 17 miles daily, until we were sure that we could not be overtaking, before arriving at the appointed rendezvous in latitude 80 degrees 30 minutes. Now was the time for marching, though. Fine weather, good surfaces, and not too cold. The best idea of our routine can be gleaned by a type specimen diary page of this stage of our journey. Quote, November 4th, 1911. Called tent at 4.50am, and after building a cairn started out at 7.25. Marched up to Blossom Cairn, latitude 78 degrees 2 minutes 33 seconds south, Longitude 169 degrees, 3 minutes 25 seconds east, where we tied a piece of black bunting to Paul Crean's leg, mourning for his pony. We lunched here and then marched on until 6.55pm when we camped, our day's march being 15 miles 839 yards. I built a snow cairn while supper was being prepared. Surface was very good and we could easily have marched 20 miles, but we were not record-breaking but going easy until the ponies came up. All the same, we shall have to march pretty hard to keep ahead of them. Minimum temperature, minus 12.7 degrees. Temperature on camping, plus 5 degrees. End quote. We were very happy in our party, and when cooking we all sang and yarned. Nobody ever seemed tired once we got quit of the motors. We built cairns at certain points to guide the returning parties. We had a light snowfall on November the 6th and occasional overcast misty weather. But in general, the visibility was good, and although very far out on the barrier, we got some view of the Victoria Land mountain ranges. And very beautiful they looked too. But their very presence gave an awful feeling of loneliness. I must admit, it all had a dreadful fascination for me. And after the others had got into their sleeping bags, I used to build up a large snow cairn, and whilst resting, now and again, I gazed wonderingly at that awful country. The bluff stood up better than the rest, as, of course, it was so much nearer to us, and the green tent looked pitifully small and inadequate by itself on the barrier. Nothing else human was about us. Just the sledge trail, and the thrown-up snow on the vent valance, the confused whirl of sas trugi, leading in no direction particularly, a glistening sparkle here, there, and everywhere when the sun was shining, and the far distant land sitting sphinx-like on the western horizon, with its shaded white slopes and its bare outcrops of black basalt. Wilson, in our South Polar Times, wrote some lines entitled The Barrier Silence. Sometimes the silence was broken by howling blizzard, then and only then except by the puny handful of men who had passed this way. Only in Scott's first and Shackleton's Nimrod expedition had men ever come thus far. We reached one top depot on November the 9th and took our four cases of biscuits and one pair of ski, which brought our loads up to £205 per man. Even this extra weight permitted us to keep our marches over 12 miles, but we had the virtue of being very early risers, a sledging habit to which I owe my life. We snatched many an hour outward and home due to this. In latitude 80 degrees, we found an extraordinary change in the surface, so soft in fact that we found ourselves sinking in from 8 to 10 inches. This gave us a very hard day on the 13th of November when with load averaging over £190 per man, 
we hauled it through twelve miles. Fears were expressed for the ponies at this stretch, for here they would be pulling full loads. The 14th offered no better conditions of surface, but we stuck it out for ten hours solid foot slogging when we camped, hauling just twelve miles. Apart from the surface, we enjoyed the weather, a wonderful calm and beautiful blue sky. On November 15th, after building a guiding snow cairn, we continued southward to latitude 80 degrees 31 minutes 40 seconds south, longitude 169 degrees 23 minutes east, where we camped to await Scott, his party and the ponies. I proposed to build an enormous cairn here, to mark the 80 and a half degree depot. So after lunch we inspected ourselves and found nothing worse than sunburned faces and a slight thinning down all round. We commenced the cairn after a short rest. November 16th passed quietly, with no signs of the ponies. And on November the 17th we remained in camp all day, wondering rather why the ponies had not come up with us. We thought they must be doing very poor marching. It employed our time and we worked hours at the cairn, which soon assumed gigantic proportions. We called it Mount Hooper after our youngest member. Day amused us very distinctly at Mount Hooper Camp. Day, gaunt and gay, but what a lovable nature if one can apply such an adjective to him. He entertained the rest of us for a week out of the Pickwick papers. The proper number of hours in the forenoon was spent in building the giant depot cairn, then lunch and then the cosy sleeping bags and day's reading. It was unforgettable, and I think we all watched his face, which took somehow the expression of the character he was reading about. We put in a good deal of sleep in those days, and went walks such as they were in direct line away from the tent and directly back to the tent. We must surely have been the first in the world to spend a week holiday-making on that frozen Sahara, the great ice barrier. There is little enough to record during this wait at Mount Hooper. We could have eaten more than our ration, and to save fuel we occasionally had dry hoosh for supper which means that we broke all our biscuits up and melted the pemmican over the primus, half-fried the biscuit in the fat pemmican, and made a filling dish. The temperature varied between 20 below zero and a couple of degrees above. November the 20th found us growing impatient, for I find in my diary that day, Once again we find no signs of the ponies. We all say, damn it, and look forward to the next meal. Day reads more Pickwick to us and keeps us out of mischief. I got sights for error and rate of chronometer watches, but these are not satisfactory with so short an epoch as our stay at Mount Hooper, when change in altitude is so slow. Beyond working out the sights, I did really nothing. Temperature at 8pm, plus 7 degrees. Wind southwest, 3 to 4. Cirrus clouds radiating from southwest, minimum temperature, minus 14 degrees. End quote. But at last, relief from our inactivity came to us. On the 21st of November, just before 5am, Lashley woke me and said the ponies had arrived. Out we all popped to find Atkinson with poor old Jehu, Wright with Chinaman, and Kierhane with my old friend James Pig. They looked tired, the ponies' leaders, and we looked as though we'd come out of a bullfight in a barn, with our hair grown long and full of loose reindeer hairs from the sleeping bags all mixed with our beards and jerseys. After halloos and handshakes, smiles and grunts, we asked for news, and were gratified to find that all was well with the men and the beasts alike. 
What delay there was was due to blizzards and to the marches being purposefully kept to give the weaker animals a chance. Dave facetiously remarked, We haven't seen anything of Amundsen. Seeing that the valiant Norseman was in latitude 85 degrees 30 minutes south, nearly 11,000 feet up the altitude of the barrier at this date, one is not surprised. For all our peace of mind, it was as well we did not know it. We yarned away about ourselves and our experiences, then got our cooker underway to have breakfast and await the arrival of Captain Scott and the seven lustier ponies. They arrived before our breakfast was ready. More greetings and much joy in the motor party. Scott expressed his satisfaction at our share in the advance, hurriedly gave us further instructions, and then proceeded, leaving us to join at their camp three and a half miles further south. Accordingly, we deposited a unit of provisions at the cairn, put up a bamboo with a large black flag on it, left two of the boxes of biscuit from one-ton depot and three tins of paraffin, and then set out. We came up to the main camp at ten o'clock in the forenoon, pitched our tent, had a conference with Captain Scott, catched some biscuits, and then cooked lunch and got into our sleeping bags to await the hour of 6pm, before commencing our southward march as pioneers and trail-breakers. Scott had with him the following leading ponies, a Wilson, Oates, Bowers, Cherry Grad, Edgar Evans, and Crean, besides the aforesaid three with the Crocs. Mears and Dimitri drove dog teams, and everyone was in good health and sparkling spirits. Our leader ordered the motor party, or man-hauling party as we were now termed, to go forward and advance 15 miles daily, and to erect cairns at certain pre-arranged distances, surveying, navigating, and selecting the camping sites. The ponies were to march by night and rest when the sun was high and the air was warmer. Mears's dogs were to bring up the rear and start some hours after the ponies, since their speed was so much greater. So we started away at 8.15pm, marched seven miles and a bittock to lunch, putting up a top-hat cairn at four miles, two cairns at lunch camp, one cairn three miles beyond and so on, according to plan. Atkinson's tent gave us some biscuit, cheese and seal liver, so that the day we lived high. After lunch we continued until the prescribed distance had been fully covered. We noticed that there were ice crystals like spikes with no glide about them and the surface continued thus until 3am when there was a sudden change for the better. Quite substantial pony walls were built by the horsemen when they camped, all these marks ensuring a homeward marching route like a buoyed channel. And now it's dreaming time. One starlit evening when the pharos shone splendid over the harbour, the longed-for ship put in, and strange-faced sailors and traders appeared one by one and group by group in the ancient taverns along the sea wall. It was very exciting to see again those living faces, so like the godlike features of Gran Eck. But Carter did not hasten to speak with the silent seaman. He did not know how much of pride and secrecy and dim, supernal memory might fill those children of the Great Ones, and was sure it would not be wise to tell them of his quest, or to ask too closely of that cold desert stretching north of their twilight land. They talked little with the other folk in those ancient sea taverns, but would gather in groups in remote corners, and sing amongst themselves the haunting airs of unknown places, or chant long tales to one another 
in accents so alien to the rest of dreamland. And so rare and moving were those airs and tales, that one might guess their wonders from the faces of those who listened, even though the words came to common ears only as a strange cadence and obscure melody. For a week, the strange seamen lingered in the taverns, and traded in the bazaars of Cellophaeus, and before they sailed, Carter had taken passage on their dark ship, telling them that he was an old onyx miner, and wishful to work in their quarries. That ship was very lovely, and cunningly wrought, being of teakwood with ebony fittings and traceries of gold, and the cabin in which the traveller lodged had hangings of silk and velvet. One morning, at the turn of the tide, the sails were raised and the anchor lifted, and as Carter stood on the high stern he saw the sunrise, blazing walls and bronze statues and golden minarets of ageless Cellophaeus sink into the distance, and the snowy peak of Mount Man grew smaller and smaller. By noon there was nothing in sight, save the gentle blue of the Serenian Sea, with one painted gallery far off abound for the realm of Serenian, where the sea meets the sky. And the night came, with gorgeous stars, and the dark ship steered for Charles's Wayne and the little bear as they swung slowly around the pole, and the sailors sang strange songs of unknown places, and they stole off one by one to the forecastle, whilst the wishful watchers murmured old chants, and leaned over the rail to glimpse the luminous fish playing in bowers beneath the sea. Carter went to sleep at midnight, and rose in the glow of a young morning, marking that the sun seemed farther south than was its wont. And all through that second day he made progress in knowing the men of the ship, getting them little by little to talk of their cold twilight land, and of their exquisite onyx city, and of their fear of the high and impassable peaks beyond which Leng was said to be. They told him how sorry they were that no cats would stay in the land of Iquanoc, and how they thought the hidden nearness of Leng was to blame for it. Only of the stony desert to the north would they not talk. There was something disquieting about that desert, and it was thought expedient not to admit its existence. On later days, they talked of the quarries in which Carter said he was going to work. There were many of them for all the city of Iquanoc was builded of onyx, whilst great polished blocks of it were traded in Rinar, Orgrothan, and Cellophaeus, and at home with the merchants of Thar, Flanek, and Cadatheron, for the beautiful wares of those fabulous ports. And far to the north, almost in the cold desert whose existence the men of Iquanoc did not care to admit, there was an unused quarry greater than all the rest from which had been hewn in forgotten time such prodigious lumps and blocks that the sight of their chiselled vacancies struck terror to all who beheld. Who had mined those incredible blocks? And whither had they been transported? No man might say. But it was thought best not to trouble that quarry, around which such inhuman memories might conceivably cling. So it was left all alone in the twilight, with only the raven and the rumoured Shantak bird to brood on its immensities. When Carter heard of this quarry, he was moved to deep thought, for he knew from old tales that the Great One's castle atop unknown Kadath is of onyx. 
Each day, the sun wheeled lower and lower in the sky, and the mists overhead grew thicker and thicker. And in two weeks, there was not any sunlight at all, but only a weird grey twilight shining through a dome of eternal cloud by day, and a cold starless phosphorescence from the underside of that cloud by night. On the twentieth day, a great jagged rock in the sea was sighted from afar, the first land glimpsed since man's snowy peaks had dwindled behind the ship. Carter asked the captain the name of that rock, but was told that it had no name, and had never been sought by any vessel because of the sounds that came from it at night. And when after dark a dull and ceaseless howling arose from that jagged granite place, the traveller was glad that no stop had been made, and that the rock had no name. The seamen prayed, and chanted until the noise was well out of earshot, and Carter dreamed terrible dreams within dreams in the small hours. Two mornings after that, there loomed far ahead and to the east a line of great grey peaks, whose tops were lost in the changeless clouds of that twilight world. And at the sight of them, the sailors sang glad songs, and some knelt down on the deck to pray, so that Carter knew they were to come to the land of Iquinoch, and would soon be moored to the basalt keys of the great town bearing that land's name. Toward noon, a dark coastline appeared, and before three o'clock there stood out against the north the bulbous domes and fantastic spires of the Onyx city. Rare and curious did that archaic city rise its walls and keys, all of delicate black and scrolls, flutings and arabesques of inlaid gold. Tall and many-windowed were the houses, and carved on every side with flowers and patterns, whose dark symmetries dazzled the eye with a beauty more poignant than light. Some ended in swelling domes, that tapered to a point. Others in terraced pyramids whereupon rose clustered minarets, displaying every phase of strangeness and imagination. The walls were low, and pierced by frequent gates, under each a great arch rising high above the general level and caped by the head, of a god chiselled with that same skill displayed in the monstrous face on distant Granek. On a hill, in the centre, rose a sixteen-angled tower greater than all the rest, and bearing a high-pinnacled belfry resting on a flattened dome. This, the seaman said, was the temple of the Elder Ones, and was ruled by an old high priest sad with the inner secrets. At intervals, the clang of a strange bell shivered over the onyx city, answered each time by a peal of mystic music made up of horns, vials, and chanting voices, and from a row of tripods, on a galley round the high dome of the temple, there burst flares of flame at certain moments, for the priests and the people of that city were wise in the primal mysteries, and faithful in keeping the rhythms of the Great Ones as set forth in scrolls older than the Noptic manuscripts. As the ship rode past the great basalt breakwater and into the harbour, the lesser noises of the city grew manifest, and Carter saw the slaves, sailors and merchants on the docks. The sailors and merchants were of the strange-faced race of the gods, but the slaves were squat, slant-eyed folk, said by rumour to have drifted somehow across or around the impassable peaks from the valleys beyond Leng. The wharves reached wide outside the city walls, 
and bore upon them all manner of merchandise from the galleys anchored there, while at one end great piles of onyx, both carved and uncarved, were awaiting shipment to the far markets of Rinar, Ugrathan, and Selephaeus. It was not yet evening when the dark ship anchored beside a jutting quay of stone, and all the sailors and traders filed ashore and through the arched gate into the city. The streets of that city were paved with onyx, and some of them were wide and straight, whilst others were crooked and narrow. The houses near the water were lower than the rest, and bore above their curiously arched doorways certain signs of gold said to be in honour of the respective small gods that favoured each. The captain of the ship took Carter to an old sea tavern, where flocked the mariners of quaint countries, and promised that he would next day show him the wonders of the twilight city, and lead him to the taverns of the onyx miners by the northern wall. And evening fell, and little bronze lamps were lighted, and the sailors in that tavern sang songs of remote places. But when from its high tower the great bell shivered over the city, and the peal of the horns and vials and voices rose cryptical in answer thereto. All ceased their songs or tales, and bowed silent until the last echo had died away. For there is a wonder and a strangeness on the twilight city of Iquanoch, and men fear to be lax in its rites lest a doom and vengeance lurk unexpectedly close. Far in the shadows of that tavern, Carter saw a squat form he did not like, for it was unmistakably that of the old slant-eyed merchant he had seen so long before in the taverns of Dilathleen, who was reputed to trade with the horrible stone villages of Leng, which no healthy folk visit, and whose evil fires are seen at night from afar, and even to have dealt with that high priest not to be described, which wears a yellow silken mask over its face, and dwells all alone in a prehistoric stone monastery. This man had seemed to show a queer gleam of knowing when Carter asked the traders of Dilathleen about the cold waste of Kadath, and somehow his presence in dark and haunted Iquanoch, so close to the wonders of the north, was not a reassuring thing. He slipped wholly out of sight before Carter could speak to him, and sailors later said that he had come with a yak caravan from some point not well determined bearing the colossal and rich-flavoured eggs of the rumoured Shantak bird, to trade for the dexterous jade goblets that merchants brought from Irenek. On the following morning, the ship captain led Carter through the onyx streets of Iquanoch, dark under their twilight sky. The inlaid doors and figured house-fronts, carven balconies and crystal-paned orioles, all gleamed with sombre and polished loveliness, and now and then a plaza would open out with black pillars, colonnades and the statues of curious beings, both human and fabulous. Some of the vistas, down long and unbending streets, or through side alleys and over bulbous domes, spires and arabesque roofs, were weird and beautiful beyond words. And nothing was more splendid than the massive heights of the great central temple of the Elder Ones, with its sixteen carven sides, its flattened dome, and its lofty pinnacled belfry overtopping all else and majestic whatever its foreground. And always to the east, far beyond the city walls and the leagues of pasture land, rose the gaunt grey sides of those topless and impassable peaks, across which hideous Leng was said to lie. 
the captain took Carter to the mighty temple, which is set with its walled garden in a great round plaza, whence the streets go as spokes from a wheel's hub. The seven arched gates of that garden, each having over it a carven face like those on the city gates, are always open, and the people roam reverently at will down in the tiled paths and through the little lanes lined with grotesque termini and the shrines of modest gods. And there are fountains, pools and basins, there to reflect the frequent blaze of the tripods on the high balcony, all of onyx and having in them small luminous fish taken by divers from the lower bowers of the ocean. When the deep clang from the temple belfry shivers over the garden and the city, and the answer of the horns and vials and voices peals out from the seven lodges by the garden gates, there issue from the seven doors of the temple long columns of masked and hooded priests in black, bearing at arm's length before them the great golden bowls from which a curious steam rises, and all the seven columns strut peculiarly in single file, legs thrown far forward without bending the knees, down the walks that lead to the seven lodges, wherein they disappear and do not appear again. It is said that subterrene paths connect the lodges with the temple, and that the long files of priests return through them. Nor is it unwhispered that deep flights of onyx steps go down to mysteries that are never told, but only a few are those who hint that the priests in the masked and hooded columns are not human beings. Carter did not enter the temple because none of the veiled king is permitted to do that. But before he left the garden the hour of the bell came, and he heard the shivering clang deafening above him, and the wailing of the horns and vials and voices loud from the lodges by the gates. And down the seven great walks stalked the long files of bowl-bearing priests in their singular way, giving to the traveller a fear which human priests do not often give. When the last of them had vanished, he left the garden, noting as he did so a spot on the pavement over which the bowls had passed. Even the ship captain did not like that spot, and hurried him on towards the hill where on the veiled king's palace rises many domed and marvellous. The ways to the onyx palace are steep and narrow, all but the broad curving one whence the king and his companions ride on yaks or in yak-drawn chariots. Cutter and his guide climbed up an alley that was all steps, between inlaid walls, hearing strange signs in gold, and under balconies and aureoles went sometimes floated soft strains of music or breaths of exotic fragrance. Always ahead loomed the titan walls, the mighty buttresses, and clustered and bulbous domes for which the veiled king's palace is famous. And at length they passed under a great black arch and emerged in the gardens of that monarch's pleasure. There Carter paused in faintness at so much beauty. For the onyx terraces and colonnaded walks, the gay portieres and the delicate flowering trees espaliered in the golden lattices, the brazen urns and tripods with cunning bas-reliefs, the pedestalled and almost breathing statues of veined black marble, the basalt-bottomed lagoon, tiled fountains with luminous fish, the tiny temples of iridescent singing birds atop carven columns, the marvellous scrollwork of the great bronze gate, and the blossoming vines trained along every inch of the polished walls, all joined 
to form a sight whose loveliness was beyond reality, and half fabulous even in the land of dreams. There it shimmered like a vision under that great twilight sky, with the domed and fretted magnificence of the palace ahead, and the fantastic silhouette of the distant impassable peaks on the right. And ever, the small birds and the fountains sang, while the perfume of rare blossoms spread like a veil over that incredible garden. No other human presence was there, and Carter was glad it was so. Then they turned and descended again the onyx alley of steps, for the palace itself no visitor may enter, and it is not well to look too long and steadily at the great central dome, since it is said to house the archaic father of all the rumoured Shantak birds, and to send out queer dreams to the curious. After that, the captain took Carter to the north quarter of the town, near the gate of the caravans, where are the taverns of the yak merchants and the onyx miners. And there in a low-ceilinged inn of quarrymen, they said farewell, for business called the captain whilst Carter was eager to talk with the miners about the north. There were many men in that inn, and the traveller was not long in speaking to some of them, saying that he was an old miner of onyx and anxious to know somewhat of Equinox quarries. But all that he learned was not much more than he knew before, for the miners were timid and evasive about that cold desert to the north and the quarry that no man visits. They had fears of fabled emissaries from around the mountains where Leng is said to lie, and of evil presences and nameless sentinels far north amongst the scattered rocks. And they whispered also that the rumoured Shantak birds are no wholesome things, it being... Indeed, for the best thing that no man has ever truly seen one, for that fabled father of Shantax in the King's Dome is fed in the dark. The next day, saying that he wished to look over the various mines for himself and to visit the scattered farms and quaint onyx villages of Iquanoch, Carter hired a yak and stuffed great leathern saddlebags for a journey. Beyond the gate of the caravans the road lay straight betwixt tilled fields, with many odd farmhouses crowned by low domes. At some of these houses, the seekers stopped to ask questions, once finding a host so austere and reticent, and so full of an unplaced majesty like that to the huge features on Granek, that he felt certain he had come at last upon one of the great ones themselves, or upon one with full nine-tenths of their blood, dwelling amongst the men. And to that austere and reticent cotter, he was careful to speak very well of the gods, and to praise all the blessings they had ever accorded him. And that's all for today. Except to remind you about my Patreon account, where you can support my production of audiobooks. As a patron, you get access not just to the stories published here in the podcast, but also all the other books I record. At the moment, I'm recording a Napoleonic memoir called Recollections of a Peninsula Veteran, also Space Viking by H. Beam Piper, and the first volume of The Pentagon Papers, which reveals the dark underbelly of the U.S.'s decision-making on the Vietnam War. Please go to patreon.com and search there for Felbrick. That's F-E-L-B-R-I-G-G. This file is released on an attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Until next time.